A-T-I-V-Y-A-H dot O-R-G. Recorded February 1994 at North Atlanta Church of Christ. Pharisees, Sadducees, and their impact for the church. A three-part series, part three. And you have a lot to be proud of and a lot to be thankful to God for. And I recommend that all of you put your shoulder to the plow and just keep on plowing forward. On the way you'll probably meet a few rocks, a few hard heads, but all in all, Jesus deserves our total dedication to Him. And uh, it's been a very wonderful time for me. The subjects, as you probably already know, were not subjects that I chose to deal with. Uh, I would have talked a lot more about Israel, a lot more about the Jewishness of the Gospels and of the New Testament, but I tried to plug it in every once in a while, uh, in spite of the fact that the subjects were given to me by the leadership of this congregation, because these are the subjects that they wanted me to deal with. But I appreciate the opportunity to be here, and there are so many people that from my past, I have met uh, over the, the pilgrimage road that God has led me from the time that I chose to follow Jesus rather than to listen to my parents. And I don't recommend that to all the children, but if you have to choose between God and anybody else, choose God. His promises are good and stand uh, for all of those that walk in His ways. But since that time when I was 16 and a half and I chose to follow the Messiah, I have never regretted it, and now so many, over 30 years later, I meet people that I knew when I was just a kid, and it's so wonderful to fellowship, and to feel like a family, and to have a relationship that is so rich in the Lord. I would like to uh, do with you a passage that deals with the Pharisees from Matthew chapter 15. Then some of the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Till here. One of the most difficult things that men have to deal with is with the fact that they are created in the image of God. And because we are created with the image of God, we have this natural tendency to create. We are very creative human beings. And that creativity that God has planted in our character is a wonderful thing. That is one of the things that differentiates man from beast. The ability to create and to add up and to make new things and new ideas that the beast don't have. Creativity is a wonderful thing and is a part of the character of God that we inherited when He created us in His own image. 
The problem that becomes is that when we create something, even something good, not harmful, we start thinking that we are gods ourselves. I'm going to repeat this point. When we create things and make things happen and add two and two and make four, yeah, we all of a sudden forget that we are only creatures and we start believing that we ourselves are divine or the, at least divinely ordained. Now, Jesus never objected to the washing of hands. He himself washed hands. It is clear from the story that the Pharisees don't come to him and say, Why didn't you wash hands? They say, Why do you allow your disciples to eat without washing hands? Had they seen him eating without washing hands, they would have come to him. He washed hands. He kept the traditions of the fathers. His disciples didn't. The Pharisees started acting like God. Yeah. And said, how come you're allowing your disciples not to keep the traditions of the fathers? There wasn't an issue here in this story of whether it is right or wrong to wash hands. I want this aspect to be very clear, otherwise we'll miss the whole point of Jesus. It wasn't an issue of washing hands at all. There is nothing wrong with washing hands. In fact, I hope most of you wash your hands before you eat. Yep. And after you went to the bathroom. That's normal. And it should happen. And this was twice as more, more important in the first century when they didn't have toilet paper. So they had to wash their hands. And it was hygienic and proper and good. The only problem is that in the law of Moses, there is no such commandment. Yeah. One can infer all kinds of inferences from the law of Moses why it would be obligatory to wash hands. But all the inferences from the law of Moses of why one should wash hands yeah, are not equal to the revelation of God. Now, all the good reasoning in the world yeah, that we could come up with to say why a person should or should not do something is not ever going to be equal to God's revelation. Because if God wanted it to be a universal truth, He would have revealed it in the Bible. The fact that it is not in the Bible could be a wonderful thing to do, but it still could not be more than our tradition. Now, this is a study. If you don't understand something, ask. Do you understand what I'm saying? If God wanted something to be a command that has universal application, He would have given it together with the Ten Commandments, and with other commands, 613 other commandments that are found in the law. There is a total of 613 commandments. Yeah. He would have surely been able to give 614 commandments and say, wash your hands every time you eat. Yeah. 
He didn't do it. So all of our reasoning is only our reasoning, our own decision and tradition. And we have a right to decide whatever we want to decide as local congregations and as individuals in our own lives. I mean, nobody tells you to wear a white shirt or a blue shirt or a red shirt. You decided, can anybody come and say, why are you wearing this shirt? No. You are free to decide what shirt you wear, and you wore it. It's a part of your character. We have a guy in our congregation, Dr. David Stern. He buys 36 shirts. If he likes a shirt, he buys 36 of the same kind. If he likes a pair of pants, he buys 10 of the same kind. If he likes a pair of shoes, he buys 10 pairs of the same shoes. Very, a man that is in good financial upstanding condition. Yeah? And you see him wearing the same clothes months. <laughs> and you say, this man that has a PhD, that is intelligent, that has written books, you know, can't he change clothes every once in a while? Well, he changes clothes every day. But he wears the same clothes. It is his prerogative. He just doesn't want to make decisions. Yeah. And I'm telling you a true story. He doesn't want to decide. He wants to spend his time doing more intelligent things. Yeah. So, that's how he's chosen to live. Nobody can criticize him on that, because that is his choice. And people have right to make their choices, but they don't have the right to bind their traditions and their choices on others. Now we're going to see in the, the words of Jesus how he dealt with this issue of the Pharisees. From verse 3, who will read for us? Matthew 15 from verse 3. There is a microphone here. Go ahead, Ken. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God, he is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. Have to hear a minute. We'll get to Isaiah in a minute. Now, what, what did Jesus answer them? The basic answer is that you folks nullify the traditions of God by your own traditions. And he gives them an example of how they do it. He says that the, the law of Moses in the Ten Commandments states... Honor your father and your mother. The word honor in Hebrew doesn't only mean bow down to them, be nice to them. It means support them. Yeah? That's how the word is used in the Hebrew. It, mean, it has financial connotations. Yeah? Honor your father and your mother. And it's the only commandment, Jesus says, and it's true, that has a promise attached to it. If you do this, 
your days will be lengthened on earth. Yeah. Wonderful commandment. But what did people do? They reasoned. They reasoned and they said, who is more important, my parents or God? The answer is, God. I made that decision when I was 16 and a half years old. God is more important. Second reasoning, who should we give to more? To God or to those people who we call parents and they actually can work for themselves? The answer is God. The third reasoning is, if we give everything to God, can we live of the estate until we die? The answer is yes. The, third, the fourth reason is if we give everything to God, to the church, and then we continue to live on the estate, is it all tax deductible? Yes, because we have nothing anymore. We gave it all to God, to the church. And therefore, it's all tax deductible. But we still can live on the estate as long as we are alive and we don't have to pay income tax and we don't have to pay tax to Caesar because if they come to collect, we've got nothing. And there are people who have nothing but they live in mansions. Right? But they have nothing personally. It's all corporate owned or the company owns it or the church owns it or somebody else owns it. Now that was the condition and the reasoning that th these people would have. We say, we, we owe it all to God. So we give it all to God. It's a wonderful thing. If we owe our God, we give to God. So they gave it to God. By doing this, Jesus said, with good reasons behind it, they were annulling the commandment of God to keep their own tradition. That's what they were doing. And he brings support from Isaiah the prophet. Go ahead, Ken. Verse 8. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Okay. This is a quotation from Isaiah the prophet from chapter 29 from verse 13. And the context of Isaiah is also very severe, not less severe than the words of Jesus here. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Oh, I could preach a wonderful sermon here about instrumental music. Yeah. That you could be singing with, without an instrument, four-part harmony, and give honor and raise the roof without your heart being in it. It's possible to do so. And I will tell you that the opposite is also possible to do. The vice versa of this statement is also possible. Yeah. That people in their ignorance, and they don't know better, and nobody has ever taught them better, but their hearts are poured out to God, in spite of the fact that there is a whole 20-piece band playing. That's also a possibility. But this is what Isaiah was saying. He was saying, your lips honor me, but your heart is far from me. 
Why? He gives the, Isaiah gives the answer. He says, they in vain worship me. Yeah. Because they pay more attention. Yeah. To the doctrines and the precepts of men. This is true for Orthodox Judaism today, folks. It's not only true in the churches of Christ. It's true in the Pentecostal churches. It's true in the Baptist churches. It's a part of the human disease. Human beings have to constantly check on themselves and make sure that they don't fall into this trap that the Pharisees fell into in the time of Jesus. It's a trap that is open for all of us. Yeah? And it's also possible yeah, to worship God even alone in the desert with your heart, without even saying a word. Yeah? But your heart is screaming so loud that the angels are dancing to its tune before God. It doesn't have to be, you know, the way we have said it, that we only worship when we gather together on the first day of the Lord. Worship takes place any time that you as an individual talk to God and say, God, I'm as clay in your hands. Do with me as you wish. God, help my mother. Help my brother. Yeah. I praise you for everything that you have done. Yeah. It doesn't have to be like the Gentiles do in many words and in platitudes. It's enough to be like Elijah the prophet and say, God, answer me now. Yeah. But if it comes from the depth of your heart, with the faith of your convictions, with the submission to His will, it's as much worship as thousands of people gathered together and singing without an instrument in four-part harmony. I don't remember who I read one time, maybe from Baldwin. James Baldwin, who said one of the loneliest places in the world is New York City. To be surrounded by people above you, below you, every, all, everywhere around you, and to be alone is more lonely than to be surrounded by trees and birds and deer and, and, and partridge out in the woods somewhere. You feel more alone when you're surrounded by people sometimes. Those of you who are New Yorkers can witness to that. Yeah. It's very lonely to be alone in the city. Huh? And this is sometimes a condition inside the churches. You are surrounded by a bunch of brothers and sisters. Yeah. They're all singing the same song. They're all praising them together. They're all pray praying together. They're all studying the word together. And yet you feel alone. Is it true or not? Is it possible to happen? It is the worship of the heart that God seeks. Yeah. The aesthetic aspects of worship are not so important. They're important. But that is so important for God. There is a wonderful Hasidic story that is a tr told by a rabbi who lived in the 17th century called Baal Shem Tov. And it talks about a day of atonement. 
in which the people gathered together in the synagogue and they all wore their glad rags and they were all very, very piously dedicated to do everything the way it ought to be done and sing the prayers in the, in the right melody, in the right tune, in the right time and do everything absolutely meticulously correct. And then came the time in the Day of Atonement in which the ram's horn, the shofar, is blown. And it's a sign that God has opened the heavens and received the, the atonement of the scapegoat in the Day of Atonement and forgave the sins of his people. And the guy puts that ram's horn in his mouth and he goes, nothing comes out except noise and he tries again and nothing comes out and the whole congregation is perplexed and begins to wonder is God angry with us have we erred in the way we recited the prayers has somebody been defiled in the synagogue that God is refusing to hear our prayers and receive our uh, atonement and he tries again and again nothing comes out of the ram's horn and there was an illiterate shepherd boy sitting in the back and he saw the anxiety and the perplexion of the congregation and he pulls out his flute and he gives a whistle and everybody looks behind and all of a sudden, he tries again with the ram's horn. And a beautiful sound comes out. It is the worship from the heart of this shepherd boy who opened the gates of heaven more than the ram's horn and the prayers of all the synagogue. That's what the rabbi said. Yeah? It is that one simple boy that was not educated, that may not have been dressed right, that may not have known exactly how to pray in public. His whisper, whistle, opened the gates of heaven. And in many times we must for, not forget this. It is the worship of the heart and not what we do exactly and in the dignity. Johnny Cash, not one of my heroes, but he had one good song that I don't remember. I, I heard it maybe once or twice about a guy that just came out of jail and he gets off the train station and he hears this beautiful singing coming from a church and when he starts walking into the church he's not dressed right to come in and the people tell him we are sorry you know go get dressed first and then come back yeah. they didn't know he had nowhere to go and no clothing to get dressed with yeah. That is the modern Pharisees yeah? that pay attention more to the form and to their own traditions than to the heart and to the Spirit of God. That's what Jesus is saying. And He's saying to the, to the people of His day and to the people whom He loved, you have honored your own traditions more than you have honored God and His commandments. But this is not the end of the story. After he called the multitude to him, he said to them, Hear and understand. 
Not what enters into the mouth defiles a man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, Every plant which may my heavenly Father did not plant shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into the pit. Uh, the main point that I want to point out before I be quiet and let you a give you a chance to ask questions is this. No human tradition will survive and will stand at the end. At the end, all of man's endeavors will be burned up. All of man's endeavors. Only that which came from God will stand in the judgment day. Yeah? Even the good things that we do, they will be burned up. The good things, good traditions. And there are many good traditions that I want to fight for and not give up. There are wonderful traditions that we do and that we should do and we should uphold. I don't want to, to happen in the church today and in this congregation what happened in so many other churches. And that is that they learned the truth and because they learned the truth they gave up everything that was traditional and they were left naked without an identity, yeah? without a character. Tradition is what makes the difference between men and men. It's our identity mark. Yeah? And it's a good thing to have an identity. It's a bad thing to put the, our identity over the identity of Jesus Christ in us. That's why the Apostles Paul said, I know nothing save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Yeah? That's my first identity. After that, I am a Jew. And after that, I am an American. And after that, I am a Bulgarian. Yeah, that's not exactly the chronological old order, but that's the order of my importance to me. Yeah? And that's Joe Shulam. That's my identity. I don't want to be somebody else. I have my peculiar ways of doing things. And it's okay. As long as I don't put them above what the law and word of God says. When I put tradition in place, it's a wonderful thing. But when I use tradition to destroy other people and to alienate me from other people, that's a bad thing. And that's why Jesus brought the story of not what enters a mouth, but what comes out of a mouth that defiles a man. Who knows where he got this story from, this statement. I'll tell you where. What is the height of defilement? What is the thing that defiles a man more than any other thing in the Bible? Leprosy. Leprosy is the most defiling thing in the Bible. It takes 21 days and the ashes of the red heifer to be purified from leprosy. When we had a temple, when we had priests, 
when we had ashes of the red heifer. 21 days to be purified of leprosy. After you've been already pronounced cured, you had 21 days of purification to go through. Yeah? Longer than anything else. You can read that in Leviticus 13 and 14. On your own. Now, how do we know that what comes out of the mouth brings leprosy? Remember the story? Miriam, the sister of Moses, in the 12th chapter of the book of Numbers, spoke evil of Moses. And what was the result of this speaking evil? She became white with leprosy. Right? And from that story, there is a play of, in the Hebrew, a play on words in which Jesus makes. The word in Hebrew for leprosy is metzorah. Metzorah. The word for speaking evil of somebody else is motzirah. One is metzorah, the other one is motzirah. Jesus is making a play on words between the story of Miriam yeah, and speaking evil. Evil coming out of your mouth. He says, motzirah. Metzora. That's the words that Jesus made, you know, said, and they were harmonizing. They were, they were rhyming. Yeah? They were a play on words between Motsira and Metzora. In other words, if you speak evil, you become defiled more than if you eat evil. If you eat something, def- you know, unclean, ham or, or bacon or something like that, for Jews I'm talking about, then what is the punishment? The punishment is that you cannot go to worship till the evening. A few hours, you cannot go to the temple. That was all. You didn't have to offer a sacrifice. You didn't have to pay damages. You didn't have to do anything except you can't go to the temple. You ate pork, you can't go to the temple to worship. It's a minor thing. If it was a major thing, they'll make you pay something or offer a sacrifice or whatever. Yeah? So, defilement from food is a minor thing. But speaking evil against God's servants, that makes you leprous. We know that from the case of Miriam. That's what Jesus was saying to his disciples. And that's why he was very, taking this very seriously when the, the, the Pharisees came to categorize and to speak evil of his disciples. And that's the statement that he made. And he says, leave them alone. Don't you dare speak evil of them. Yeah? So that you yourself may not be guilty of it. Yeah? The blind will lead the blind. All of man's tradition will burn up in the fire, will not last. Only the Word of God will last. And of course, the Restoration Movement is a good historical demonstration of this. After thousands of years that Christianity was dominated by Rome, there always arose somebody and said, let's go back to the Word of God. Whether it's Luther or Calvin or Campbell, whether our people today the Word of God will stand. 
And it is our obligation to study it. But it is not our obligation to come to the ultimate conclusions. Because we won't. Historically it hasn't happened. It is a process that we all must continue to study and study and dig and find out. And anybody, I'll end with a statement from, again from the Jewish rabbis, from the Mishnah, that says like this. Anybody whose wisdom exceeds his doing, his deeds, both his deeds and his wisdom will fail. But anybody whose deeds exceed his wisdom, he will grow both in wisdom and in deeds. And this ought to be a motto for Christians today. Let's do more and study the Word of God more and argue less. You will not have time to argue and to fuss and to complain and to divide if you are out there on the field winning souls for God, doing good, doing, taking care of the widows and of the orphans and of the mission of the church. You will not find people arguing out on the field the way you find them when they have a lot of time at home. In Russia or in Israel or in South America or anywhere, anybody who has ever done evangelistic work abroad will tell you that it's much easier to get along with everybody there because everybody is busy doing the, will, the work of God. Yeah. Am I right? And that's the thing we need to be talking about. How to do more, you know, and worry about tradition less. Let's keep our traditions, but not bind them and talk against other people in castigating tone because it's not going to get us very far. It'll eat us up from inside like leprosy. That's what's going to happen. That's a lesson we could learn from the Pharisees. And may God bless us all to learn it. Here and in Jerusalem as well. Yes. Yes. Yes, Jim. Well, first I wasn't there. And, uh, and second, I can attempt to describe. First, the structure was very different in the first century. People were in smaller groups. And second, the church was persecuted. And they were not free in the sense that the law was on their side. The law was not on their side. They did what they did as in the Greek it says aposynagoge. The Christians went to the synagogue because most of the cities they didn't have Bibles. The only place that they could hear the word of God read was in a synagogue. The way Acts 15 verse 21 says. Yeah. If you want to hear Moses read He's read every week in the synagogue. Yeah. They didn't have a Bible. So they gathered together after they went to the synagogue and they heard the, the, the word of God read. They came back and gathered in somebody's home. 
And there they ate. They ate a meal, which the first part of the meal was the blessing over the bread and the wine. Yeah? They blessed it. Yeah? And that's what the first word for the Lord's Supper was the Eucharist. Yeah? The Eucharist. The Eucharist means the blessing. They gave the blessing over the bread and the wine. It's the, the translation of the Hebrew word Kiddush. Yeah? A Kiddush in America. Yeah? And the blessing was done and the meal was eaten in honor of the Messiah. That the early church inherited from the Jewish community that preceded Jesus. They were already doing this. After the Sabbath. When the Sabbath day was over, on the first day of the week, they gathered, they came back from the evening service in the synagogue, and they went to somebody's house, and they ate. That was the main reason for going there. Not for the food, but for the communal meal in honor and in the name of Jesus. Now, everything that Jews do involves eating. Huh? They ate chicken, lentils, beans, uh, garbanzo. They ate bread. They ate uh, vegetables. Yeah? Not all. They didn't eat oranges or potatoes. Yeah? They didn't have those. These came from the New World, from America. Yeah? But they ate, if all of you come to Jerusalem, I'll take you to a Roman restaurant. There is a Roman restaurant that specializes in the food of the Roman period. You can't order Coca-Cola or coffee or chocolate or all these things. You only get what they ate and the way they ate and you sit the way they sat and you wear the kind of clothing they wear, they wore and you have music, the kind of music they listen to, and you have young ladies fanning you with big fans, the way they did before they had air conditioning. Yeah? And it's a wonderful experience. Yeah? And, but that's the type of thing they ate. They ate without tomatoes, without potatoes, without oranges or pineapples or bananas. Yeah? But, but they ate, then after they ate, they shared. What did they share? The way the Apostle Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians. One shared the song. One shared the hymn. One shared the word of wisdom. One shared something that he learned from the portion of the week. They didn't read what they wanted to. They didn't have topical studies. No, I'm not joking. They had the portion of the week. Everybody in the whole Jewish world, at that time and today, read every week the same section of the law. All over the world, even today, all Jewish synagogues preach from the same text every week, which gives it a unity and also a certain degree of commonness, togetherness, even with people that live, you know, in South America. We know what they're studying. And we can tell even what week Jesus was in the synagogue when he started his ministry and read Isaiah chapter 61. Because we know on what Jewish calendar date this text was being read. Yeah? And in, what, in conjunction with what portion of the week from the law this was read. 
So when they went at home, they added to the reading of the law a discussion of the doctrine of the apostles. Or if they had a letter from the apostles. Or if they had one of the gospels. They would discuss that and how this applies to what was going on in the synagogue that day. To the portion of the week. And one of the theories is that the Gospel of John is a holiday lectionary. That it is built as a, a companion set to the reading of the law and the prophets during the Jewish holidays. That's why the Gospel of John is divided into the holidays. Right? You got all the Jewish holidays except Purim in the Gospel of John. You've got the Feast of Tabernacles and Passover twice. Yeah? Because it is, goes from Passover to Passover. And you've got the Feast of Hanukkah in chapter 10 of John, 22 I think. Yeah, the Feast of Dedication, which means Hanukkah. And you've got the Feast of Tabernacles, in, uh, I mean of weeks, Shavuot. In, in the Gospel of John. So one of the theories is that John was a companion lectionary to the holidays, to the reading of the Law and the Prophets. And that's what they did. And, and you know, the, the, the service was once a week. Yeah? The official service of the church was once a week at the end of the Sabbath, at the beginning of the week. Why it was once a week? Because the apostles didn't want them to spend all their money you know, and then come back at the end of the week and say, we finished the money. They wanted them to collect, you know, in the beginning of the week before they spent it on themselves through the week. ...of doing things. Uh, but it's not true. They had the collection because that's when they met. They didn't meet in order to have the collection then. Anyway, this is, this is more or less on a thumb sketch of how they did. Uh, yes, sir. Oh, thank you. In the book of Acts in chapter 13... You read about who were the elders of the church in Antioch, right? Open the Bible, read to me chapter 13, the first verses from the book of Acts. Who were the elders? <laughs> They're heavy names that you have to pronounce. That's why I'm trying to pass this to someone else, Joseph. Go ahead. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene. How do you pronounce that? Manian? Menahem. Very good. You, you did well, Joseph. Who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Okay. Two things I want to... Don't, don't quit yet. Lucius, the what? Of Cyrene. And then, what else? Read the names again. Okay. Simeon called Niger. 
Simeon called Niger. What does it mean called Niger? Simeon the black. That's what it means. They were black Jews then and there are today. You know, we just got thousands of them from Ethiopia, the Falasha Jews. After so many years of exile, we brought 16,000 of them, smuggled them out of Ethiopia in one night. 16,000, uh, two years ago. But anyway, Simon the Black, and who else? Menahem? Yeah. What, what, what was the distinction? Uh, it doesn't... Oh, okay, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Who was brought up from childhood with Herod the Tetrarch. Now, this Menachem was at one time the head of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. He was the head of the Sanhedrin, and we know a lot about him from Josephus and from the Jewish sources. Not as much as we would have known had the rabbis not tried to blot his name out. Yeah. Because one of the ways that the rabbis kind of rewrote history is people that they didn't like, they just erased them from the page. Yeah. They just didn't talk about them. They didn't mention them. Yeah. And this Menahem was one of these men. But you find a couple of statements in rabbinical literature about this particular Menahem. You find a statement that he became a believer in Jesus. Yeah. And you find a statement that he was a friend of Herod the Great, I mean of Herod the Tetrarch, from childhood. And you find a statement that he was a great scholar and a prophet. That he had prophesied to Herod the Tetrarch uh, a prophecy when they were children that came out through uh, when they became adults. This same Menachem. And he was the head of the Sanhedrin. I mean, way up there, yeah. like the Supreme Court judge in Jerusalem, when he believed in Jesus. Nativia, www.netivyah.org.